0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. This week, we'll hear a message from Mike Cosper. And ask yourself for a second, why is Kim Kardashian famous? Why is she so successful? Why has she got such a hold on our culture's imagination? In an interview with The Guardian one time, this reporter was trying to figure this out. He was as baffled by it as probably you are right now. And so he asks her point blank, hey, what is it? What's your talent? What is it that you're talented at that's causing you to be the the phenomenon that you are? And he said she looked at him with these really, really wide eyes and said, Well, you know, you can train a bear to stand on a ball and juggle. And he's talented, but he's not famous. you know what I mean? Do you ever wonder why the love of movies and stories and television seems innate? Stories can affect our souls in profound ways. At the 2016 National Conference, Mike Cosper addresses this topic in his talk, The stories we tell, how TV and movies long for and echo the truth. We hope you find this message engaging and helpful. I'm here today to talk about uh, storytelling, about stories and culture, about why we tell stories, what we're trying to get out of them what they reveal about us and the human heart. Uh, I'm tempted on a, on a transition like this, that's this stark to say, with, uh, as John Cleese might say, and now for something completely different. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and if you take the Highway 155 out of the city, Taylorsville Road, you pass through some suburban neighborhoods, and you pass the, the interstate highway that wraps around the city, and you'll find yourself very quickly in a little Kentucky town with a wonderful Kentucky name. It's called Pope Lick. And uh, Pope Lick is famous for two reasons. The first reason is there's this overland train bridge. At one point, it was the longest overland train bridge in the world. I don't think that's true anymore. But it's about three-quarters of a mile, and at its height, it's about 100 feet off the ground. And this place is famous because every year, people dare one another to go out and to run the trestles. And the reason this is a dare, the reason it's a challenge, is if you're on this train bridge when the train comes, there's nowhere to go. You'll get run over by the train or you will fall horribly to your death 100 feet below you. And every year this happens. Every year you hear these horrible stories in the news about this happening to kids and college students and things like this. But Pope Lick is also famous for a second reason, and that's for something that's known as the Pope Lick Monster or the Kentucky Goatman. The the story of the Kentucky Goatman, there are various versions of his origin story, everything from this was a farmer who sold his soul to the devil or this is an escaped, you know, so there was a there was a train wreck in the 1930s and this creature escaped from a from a circus and has been haunting these woods ever since. But the the gist of the the myth the gist is that if you're running the trestles and the goat man sees you, he's going to use his goat legs to bound up one of these hills and to block you from getting off the tracks. So, you, you know, when you face off with the goat man, it's, it's basically you're between a rock and a hard place, suffer a horrible death getting run over by a train, or a horrible death getting eaten by the goat man. And right about now you're all wondering why on earth is he telling this story? <laughs> Well, I think this story is interesting because I think these two phenomenon have something to do with one another. Andy Crouch says that culture is what we make of the world. And I think stories are a way that we make sense and we make meaning in a world that's often very troubling and very confusing. I think the goat man is a myth. But it's a myth that gives us a name for the darkness and for the evil that happens. The senseless evil that happens on those trestles. A story like The Goatman as well, it's kind of a, a relic from another time. Uh, if you've gone back in history a bit, you, you would find yourself in a time where myths like this were really common and fairy tales and fables were the way that you passed down wisdom from one generation to the next. And really at the, at the heart of them, fairy tales and fables and myths, they're, they're really not about whether or not these things are factual and they happened, but they're about how does the world work. Those stories tell us that actions have consequences, that lies get found out, that blessings and curses are meaningful. In our day and age, we we still see these every now and then, but but often they're sort of passed on in in folksy wisdom, and they feel like relics of another time. In my own family, I I had an, an Aunt Jenny, she was actually my great aunt, and she was famous in our family for these aphorisms that she said all the time. And they were aphorisms that sort of hinted at these things, that there was, the world was more than you could see, that there was, there was something bigger going on than just the material reality that we live in. She would say things like, never worry about anything a dollar can fix. She'd say, there are no coincidences, and there are no secrets. And the one that I probably heard a thousand times while I was in high school was, nothing good ever happens after midnight. <laughs> I think there's a wisdom... In stories like this, there's a wisdom in, that's being passed down in fables and fairy tales and in these aphorisms from my aunt. It makes sense of a world where there's more to life than what we can see, than what we can account for in ordinary, normal ways. But there's sort of a dying thing in our world now. These myths, these, this way of looking at creation is, is, is passing away. And now we tell different stories and different myths. And the gist of these is that what you see is what you get. There's no such thing as the supernatural. There's no such thing as transcendence. That thing that you experience when you look at art and it's overwhelming, or that thing that you experience when you look at your children with love and your wife with love, or your husband with love, that's just neural activity that's happening in your brain, and it's only there to perpetuate the species. It doesn't actually mean anything more than that. So how do we find ourselves in a world that's shaped this way? Well, there's a philosopher and a, and a social theorist by the name of Hannah Arendt who says that we can basically blame all of this on Karl Marx. <laughs> she, says, she, she says, if you look at human history and the history of thought, you can go all the way back to Plato. And Plato sort of sets us up for a transcendent world. He tells the story of the cave analogy. And if you've heard, you've probably heard the cave analogy, but just to revisit it, it's, it's this story he, that Plato tells where he says, imagine a group of people who've spent their entire lives in a cave. And they've been shackled up in such a way that all they can see is the cave wall. And behind them, there's a fire and there's shadows being thrown from the fire up on the cave wall. And for their whole lives, that's their world. That's their reality. That's the only reality they know. And Plato says, imagine if somebody comes in one day and unshackles them and takes them outside to see the the sun and the trees and the beauty of the world around them. Plato says that's the goal of the philosopher, that's the real meaning of life, is not to live in these material things that we can see in front of us, but to know that there's something more going on, to reach out for whatever that transcendent, divine, whatever you want to call it, reality is. And Arnt says that Western history has basically been building on that, trying to make sense of the, the sense, the overwhelming sense that we have as humans that there's something more to life. And then along comes Karl Marx, and he says, look, you've got this all wrong. We're we're obsessed with all these abstractions and with your religion and with your spirituality and all this stuff. And we have real problems in a real world. So let's just deal with those. And Marx says, let's forget about the transcendent. Let's forget about all this, this stuff that we do to distract ourselves from how hard life is. And let's focus on that. And he prioritizes the social, and he prioritizes the political. And the way Arndt describes it is he essentially takes us back from the outdoors into the cave and shackles us up again and says, these shadows, that's what's most important. What's what's important for us is to recognize that Marx is telling a story about history. He's telling a story about where humanity is going. And he's doing it along with people like Hegel and Freud and Darwin and other men, men of his time. And the story they're telling is that humanity is getting over its ignorance. We're moving on from transcendence. We've gotten better, we've evolved, we've progressed, and now our society is moving towards a place where we're going to be more and more harmonious and better. And this bothers Hannah Arendt because she was, she was living in Germany in 1933, and she was a Jew, and she had, to, she had to escape for her life. Twice. First from Germany, then later from occupied France. She spent the rest of her life and the rest of her work as a social theorist trying to understand how could this happen. And part of what she attributes it to is that our sense of moral categories disappeared and it made, it made the space for radical evil to enter into the world. For us today, we, we still find ourselves immersed in a world where mostly what's prioritized around us is just the material world. And so we end up looking in that world for Meaning. We can't look to the transcendent anymore. We're sort of blocked off from it. If we try to go there, our heads bump on a ceiling. That's the way our culture works. And so, where do, where do we go? Where does We go as a culture to try to find meaning, to try to find value, to try to find satisfaction for our souls. We look for it in the material world. And my favorite example of this is probably reality television. Because that's what reality television is. It's holding out for us pictures of the good life. And of course, the queen of reality television is Kim Kardashian. And ask yourself for a second, why is Kim Kardashian famous? Why is she so successful? Why has she got such a hold on our culture's imagination? In an interview with The Guardian one time, this reporter was trying to figure this out. He was as baffled by it as probably you are right now. And so he asks her point blank, hey, what is it, what's your talent? What is it that you're talented at that's, causing you to be the the phenomenon that you are. And he said she looked at him with these really, really wide eyes and said, well, you know, you can train a bear to stand on a ball and juggle, and he's talented, but he's not famous. Do you know what I mean? See, she is an icon of the good. It's a great quote. I mean, it's an amazing quote. (laughs) She's an icon for us of what we think the good life is. She's powerful. She's rich. She's a, she's a sex symbol. She's all of these things that we think, if we had that, then we'd be happy. And so we flock to her. People flock to her, and they spend money to try to, to, try to assimilate some of her life into their own lives. What reality television does is it reveals where our hearts really are, what we're actually longing for, and what we're hoping is going to make us happy. Whether it's a a lifestyle, or a new home, or food, or whatever it might be. But the fact is that even in a world that's oppressed by this materialistic way of thinking, we still long for transcendence. We still long for a story that shapes our world around a greater hope and a greater meaning. And in our day and age, the way that that stuff gets worked out of the human art, heart is often in pop culture, in fiction, in fantasy, and in comic books. Comic book writer Grant Morrison has this great quote. He says, we live in the stories that we tell ourselves. And for Morrison, he, he believes that comic books are essentially modern mythologies. They're the places where the longings of our hearts really are, really are being expressed because it's, it's safe. We go, oh, that's just fiction. We don't have to assign any real meaning to it. And he says, but it's no coincidence, the way that desire shows up in comic books. He says, it's no coincidence that in the height of the Cold War in the 1960s, when, when nuclear terror has basically gripped the whole world, that a story gets told about some scientists who are trying to develop weapons, but they're trying to be peacekeepers, but everything goes awry, and all of a sudden you have Dr. Octopus, and you have the Green Goblin up here in the world. Human effort goes wrong, and now there's a radical evil on Earth. But then what happens next is a radioactive spider, somehow, by providence, by fate, by the hand of God, bites an ordinary kid, and there's a hero who shows up who can save us from... Scientific nuclear terror. Just as the Goatman gives name to a fear about the trestles, Spider-Man gives us a name for a certain kind of hope. So while on the one hand the world is telling us stories that say there's no such thing as mystery, there's no such thing as the soul, your, sp- your spirit, your soul, they're not vulnerable to anything unseen, there's no real consequences beyond this life, They're telling stories that define the good life in terms of power, money, and sex. The human heart continues to express a longing for meaning, for hope, for a story that can make sense of all of this. And the only safe place for that is often in pop culture. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, the the writer says that God has put eternity in our hearts. We long to connect for that. And the soul is looking for ways to connect to that. And it shows up again, again, and again in the stories that we tell. I think for us as believers, this means that we have an enormous opportunity. We have the opportunity, first off, to to quietly and faithfully resist these narratives that the world is, is giving to us. Resist a materialistic accounting for the world that says that what you see is all that there is. We have to tell stories and to live lives that say that there's more to life than money, power, and sex. And that message has always been at the heart of the church's worship and witness. Secondly, I think we can follow in Paul's footsteps in Acts chapter 17 where he heard the stories of the philosophers and the poets. And he he walked amongst them and he listened to them and he took them in and then he says, Hey, that God that you're looking for, he has a name and it's Jesus. I think we can look for ways that the imagination is cracking open in our world and where longing for hope and wonder and mystery is breaking in. And we can say to that world that there might indeed be something terrible and frightening in the darkness of the woods and the darkness of the world beyond it. But that God has shined a light into the darkness and his name is Jesus and the darkness will not overcome it. Thank you all. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the ERLC podcast. For more information about cultural engagement, visit ERLC.com.